So uh, yeah, this if if you don't like this song, it was all Crawley's idea. <laughs> Everybody hates Lenny Dykstra. Mitch Williams wants to fight you. Lenny's missing teeth, so he can't bite you. Mitch Williams doesn't like you. Dykstra talks a lot of shit, and Mitch ain't down with it. Lenny is a total fail. He even went to jail. Lenny didn't like it. Yeah, we fucked up. Everybody, Everybody hates Lenny Dykstra. Mitch Williams wants to fight you. Lenny's missing teeth, so he can't fight you. Mitch Williams doesn't like you. Lenny is a drunk, and so he lost his house. And then he lost his dentures when they fell out of his mouth. Ace, Lenny Dykstra. Mitch Williams loves to fight you. Lenny's missing teeth, so he can't bite you. Williams doesn't like you. I'll, I'll make sure we record that and get it to you, you know. <laughs> we'll, we'll learn how to get from the verse to the chorus by the time we record it, though, you know. We'll work that bit out. <laughs> Oh, good. Oh, nice. All right, good. Well, I'll set it out. I guess, Sue, you want me to do this one, right? Cubs fans helping Cubs fans at Stewart's Cubs K party. Everybody's in for giving back to those in need. We're going to Club 400. Before we get started here, there's a lot of newbies here, and uh, since 2014, this basement that you're sitting in has raised $400,000 for Cub fans and Cubs-related charities. I mean, I'll tell you one thing, one of the things that I love about having Club 400 is I could pick the guys I want to come out here, and Mitch, you've been on the radar since day one. I want to thank Brian Freeze for bringing you out today. Where's Brian at? We're all sitting here because of Brian Freeze over there. He picked him up from the airport today. I got a new co-host today. Danny Rocket from the San Ranto Podcast. You guys, let's all give a big warm welcome to the wild thing, Mitch Williams. Come on up, Mitch. Yeah, we'll get you there you go. We'll give you that mic. Thank you, Mike. Take a chair. He's going to bring me a chair with a back on it. Okay. Gotcha. Just perfect. Perfect. Yeah, baby, bro. Yeah, 
We do have some seats up here in the front. All right, you guys. Before we get started, I would like to ask for everybody in the back to please be quiet as much as you possibly can because the voice from the back comes all the way to the front because maybe the acoustics of this place. So if we could... Yeah. I'll get close to Mitch, man. The wild thing's here, all right? First of all, Mitch, thanks for coming all the way out from Philly just to come to this Club 400 event. And I mean that. I mean, there's kind of like... Mitch Williams, why aren't you at the Cubs convention? Why aren't you? I mean, the Cubs, you're like a, you know, when I was a kid. Uh, Will you guys please stop saying when you were a kid? <laughs> Damn, I ain't that old. But I'm just saying there's a void in this town. There's not enough Mitch Williams, and that's why I'm really happy that you decided to come out here and fly all the way out here from Philadelphia. Now there's a big storm coming in. And, Thank you very much. I'm probably going to spend four days here. And you know what? That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Might as well stay for Cubs convention just then. Just so you know, yeah. I love Chicago, so I won't mind. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you here. Uh, these nights are always really special, and I want to thank um, uh, both Tovar. Where's uh, uh, Mr. Eric Hartman? And where's our uh, Rush Paving? Rose Paving, yep. Rose Paving, sorry. Yep, Rose Paving. He's eating pizza. He's eating pizza. So. Now, we talked about this earlier today. I'm going to start off a little controversial. I think he's probably the second best player wearing number 28 because we have Kyle Hendricks' dad in the house. So, I mean, <laughs> sorry, Mitch. I know. No, <laughs> he almost, did you say a perfect game? He almost threw a perfect game. And Maddox, uh, I was at the game man, and against the Cardinals, too. He even made it even sweeter. Just work? Maddox. Test, test. Huh? He threw a Maddox. 81 pitches. I throw 81 pitches in three innings. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You can't hit what they can't reach. That's right. There's a philosophy there. So, yeah, I, you know, you're here in Chicago for two years, makes such a huge impact. Uh, I mean, well, I was a kid as well, but, you know, but I, I was a little, you know, it wasn't a little kid. I was in high school and stuff, you know, when you were pitching. And I, I remember 1989 as just a really magical season of, like, tons of ups and downs, you know, the big losing streaks, big winning streaks, lots of injuries, lots of, like, hard on the team that brings it back, a lot of loaded bases strike out the side, you know, that year. The very exciting season. So, like, the boys of Zimmer, could you talk a little bit about, like, the, the magic that happened in that season? Because it really was that for me it basically all started in spring training uh i'm coming from texas to chicago always loved coming here as an opposing player i love the ballpark but i get to spring training and this is a ryan sandberg town and everybody knows rhino is the white, great white hope well sean dunston has a reputation around baseball we get through about the first week of spring training, and just to set this up, I love Sean. Best teammate I ever played with in my entire career. Should I mention right now, he is coming to Club 400. We'll talk about that later. What the hell was I saying? Oh, you were saying how uh, Sean Dunson's the greatest teammate oh. of all time. So we come out to stretch one day. It's, we're in spring training. I've been there about a week. And Sean is just, he's funny. And he, he says to me during stretching one day, he said, Mitch. I said, yeah. He said, you've been here a week. I said, yeah. He said, 
Everybody says Sean's the asshole. Sean's the asshole. After a week, who's the asshole, me or Rhino? I went, Rhino. He said, thank you. <laughs> Sean was one of those guys. I don't know if you remember. I saw the blank contract of, of Hawks. So Hawk was Sean's daddy, basically. He took care of him. He tried to teach him. Well, we were going through all the collusion in baseball at that time. Well, obviously, Hawk had been colluded against because they gave him 500 grand to hit 49 homers and win the MVP. So we're sitting in spring training, and Donald Fuhrer, the head of the Players Association, comes in for his yearly spring training meeting, and he's trying to talk and explain everything that's going on in the game and the collective bargaining agreement and all that. And the entire time, Sean is just sitting there, he's raising his hand. And Hawk keeps pulling it down, keeps pulling it down. <laughs> so finally, Donald Fuhrer calls on him, says, yes, Sean. Swear to God, I'm not making this up. Sean says, so you mean to tell me Kirby Puckett goes free agency and no one signs him? Is that conclusion? <laughs> and Hawk just went. <laughs> Donald Fuhrer started cracking up. And Hawk was a gold glove boxer. Was he? When he was young, yeah. Oh, I, I mean, from the waist up, the man was an Adonis. From the waist down, he was 115 years old. <laughs> his knees, his feet. I never seen feet like this in my entire life. I walked in on the first time in the training room getting his knees taped. And he's laying there, like, sitting there on the table like this. No sock on. And I walk by and I look at this foot. And I said, Hawk, somewhere there's an orangutan with your feet because you got his. <laughs> I mean, there, the number of balls this man had fouled off his feet, his toes were all gnarled up. I'm like, God almighty. <laughs> so to continue on the Hawk saga a little bit, Nintendo calls us, me and Andre Dawson. I said, wow, they must be having a before or after contest or something. <laughs> So they want us to go to Soho, New York, and shoot a commercial for the new Nintendo Wii baseball game. So we're in a loft in Soho shooting this commercial. And you know, if you haven't ever met Andre, he's real mild-mannered, the classiest player or person I might have met in my life. And we're in this little studio apartment shooting this thing for Nintendo. You have to do these, yeah, like this with a deal in your hand to make the motion of throwing, and then Hawk's got his bat, and he's like this, and a little bit of thing, and he's got a swing. The very first take, we're sitting there, and I go, I make the pitch motion, and Hawk swings like he's trying to win a home run hitting contest, <laughs> and farts. <laughs> I swear to God, and he's not. He swings and finishes and farts and just <laughs> back in there and gets set again. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, are you seriously not going to acknowledge that? Everyone in the fucking room heard it. <laughs> I've never seen that man with tears in his eyes, but he was caught, fell down to the floor, and just started crying, laughing. There's nothing better than catching a classy person doing something that I would do. <laughs>
I'm sure there's a lot of questions out there. I do have some stories that I'll tell, but if you guys got questions, just fire up your hands and let me go. I wanted to bring up something that Crawley brought up. Um, opening day, 1989, your first appearance for the Chicago Cubs. Let's talk about basically that moment. Obviously, it was a uh, it kind of well, I thought kind of defined the '89 season. I mean, you know, it kind of said, watch out, strap your seatbelt on, boys. It's going to be a wild ride with the wild thing. Uh, you know, that was your first time pitching for the Cubs. Uh, tell us about that whole experience uh, being on the mound opening day, which is always a special thing. Honestly, when I got traded, uh, I was thrilled. I wanted to come to a place where the fans were excited about baseball. I love living in Texas, but baseball is not a sport for Texas. Unless you're winning, they don't come because it's 115. So it was great to come here to Chicago. And I get to that first opening day, and Sutcliffe is the opening day starter. And he's trying to tie the all-time record for opening day wins, which I did not know before I took over for him in the eighth. But I get out of the eighth. He had two guys on the eighth with one out, and I get out of that inning. And then I got a hit. And mind you, I hadn't even swung a bat since 1984. But, but I could hit. I still hold the record for home runs in the state of Oregon, by the way. You can look it up. So Zimmer doesn't double switch. The game snuck up on him, I guess. So I'm hitting like third or fourth in the order. And Steve Bedrosian is pitching for the Phillies. And I swear to God, he throws the first fastball, and I swung at it on the way back to him. And I said, I don't believe I'm going to be able to catch up. So next pitch, we got guys on second and third. With, I think there's two outs. So I said, if I can get a bunt down, a good drag bunt down, I can't run for shit. But if I can get it in the right spot, I, I can drive a run in. And I put this thing down perfectly. They didn't tell me Bedrock won the gold glove the year before. And he makes a spectacular diving play and with my foot speed only threw me out by 40 feet. <laughs> so I get through that inning and now I gotta go back out and pitch. And I hadn't done that, like I said, since I was a position player. I go back out there, first guy up, I don't even remember. I know Vaughn Hayes was one of the broken bats. Tommy Herr, Von Hayes, and one other guy. I break three straight bats, and I got bases loaded and nobody out. And I'm thinking, National League ain't all that much fun. And then I look to the guy on deck. And Mike Schmidt starts walking to the plate. And I swear to God, you shouldn't do this if you're a big leaguer. I spent the whole pregame watching a special on Mike Schmidt and his 51 career homers at Wrigley. And I swear, I look over and I see him walking up there and I'm like, son of a bitch, this guy's got 51 homers here. And I, I think I went 2-0 and on him and then came back and struck him out. And then the next guy I knew because I had played against him since rookie ball and it was Chris James. And he came up, and I knew he was an out. All I had to do, do was let the catcher catch it, and he'd swing at it. So I struck Chris out, and then I look over, and they, all they got left is a left-handed bat named Mark Ryle. Well, Mark Ryle used to be 
at the time in the Angels organization, and I had faced him many times in the minor leagues. I could throw him the rosin bag and he would swing at it. <laughs> so ended up striking him out and it went nuts. And then from there, I've never played in a city like Chicago. And it was awesome. And, and we really have never seen a pitcher like you before. I mean, you're like halfway to third base laying on the ground when you finish your uh, delivery. You know, that unorthodox style, we had never seen that. We had seen a lot of pitchers that would load the bases and strike out the side. We had Lee Smith through the mid-'80s. And, you know, so we were used to that kind of like heart attack ending of a, of a game. But um, I, I guess my question is, in, during that year, the 89 season, I don't want to dwell on it, but was there some sort of like, it felt like there was this brotherhood that like developed between you guys, that you had a, the perfect mix of like young guys and old guys and, and newbies like you, and then you guys just gelled on a certain level. And, I, you know, the night games had started by that point, but there weren't very many, mostly day game, eight day games is all you had, or, or eight night games is all you had. Like, so what was that like? You know, you finished the game, you guys going out afterwards? Like, it, it felt like you did. Even if you didn't, it certainly felt like you did. Well, I can say this. I was thankful that since I had to play day games, it was in Chicago. First of all, when I got traded, I just happened to look, and my ERA, my first three years in the big leagues, was a run and a half higher in the daytime than it was at night. And I'm thinking, oh, this can be fun. <laughs> but I got here and realized it was, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. If I got to be honest, if I wasn't married at the time, which I'm not married to her anymore, <laughs> I would have hey, broke. By the way, Mitch Williams has been married 26 years to his wife. Unbelievable. My second huh? wife. Second wife, yeah. The first wife I had to pay off to go away. <laughs> <laughs> Worth every nickel. Many of us have been there. So, yeah, it was something. When you had the evenings off, I was glad because my first wife couldn't make toast. So I had to eat out every night, and I never had a bad meal in this city. So I loved it. Anybody else got something out there? I was going to ask. I will we'll pass the mic around. But I wanted, um, you know, one of my favorite guys, which... He was more of a Yankee, but Don Zimmer, as, as your man, uh, boys Zimmer, you know. Tell us, a, I would like to hear an awesome Don Zimmer story because the guy was, he's like everybody's grandpa, you know. He's, I felt like he was my grandpa when he was managing the Cubs. Zim was as good a guy as I ever played for. Uh, when I got traded, the media and everything wanted to make it out that it was a war between me and Zimmer. It was not the case in the least bit. It was a war between me and Jim Fry. I couldn't stand him. He couldn't stand me, and we parted ways. But I parted a little more wealthy than he did. <laughs> so I look back on that. What was your question? Uh, just a good Don Zimmer story. Oh, you know? Zim, I'm sorry. I get off track. When I came from Texas, we threw the football on the field every single day. Tom House was our pitching coach. It's a great drill. I believe in it. Walk in the door the first day, and Zim comes over to my locker, and he says, uh, there ain't going to be no football on the field. I said, that's fine, Zim. You're the manager. So I come in early one day. I was always the first one at the ballpark. Yeah, no shit. Every day. I was at the ballpark by 7 o'clock every morning. Well, Dana, one of the clubhouse kids, I had a football. And I knew Zim was in his office. 
So I thought I'd mess with. Is anybody in here offended by bad language? No, no, I don't think so. Are you sure? Because <laughs> you might have to tell the kids to put earmuffs on. So, Patty loves it. I'm down in the clubhouse with my football and Dana, the clubhouse kid. And I get right at the bottom of the stairs to Zimmer's office. And I'm throwing the football with Dana in the clubhouse and everything. And I get right to the bottom of Zim's stairs and I yell, get that fucking football out of here. <laughs> Nothing came of it. I'm in sitting in my locker. It has to be 20 minutes later. <laughs> and here comes his head bobbing down the clubhouse. He never even slowed down. He just walks behind me and says, get your ass in my office. <laughs> okay. So I go in his office and he proceeds to just unleash on me. I mean, it's a 15-minute tirade. <laughs> Finally, I just do this. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and he finally took a breath. I said, are you done? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, is something wrong, Zim? I said, I knew you were in your office. I was just fucking with you. He went, oh. Well, I had a fucking root canal done this morning. <laughs> <laughs> So I get yelled at because he had a dentist appointment. <laughs> Another good Zim story. And a lot of you will probably remember this game. It's late in the season. Montreal came in for a three-game series. And they were the ones chasing us. Well, I come in with bases loaded and two outs. Save situation. I come in the ninth inning with two outs. I, Bases loaded. I said, this is just what I live for. So we got the meeting on the mound. Barry Hill comes out. Sean and all them come in. And I won't look at Sean. I'm talking to Damon. I said, Sean, I said, first pitch, I'm going to throw a fastball up and away. Second pitch, we're going to pick this guy off second. And, oh, no, it was Lloyd uh, McClendon. I said, first pitch, I'm going to throw a fastball up and away. Second pitch, we're going to pick this poor rookie off first base. <laughs> they brought in a rookie pinch runner. I was like, perfect. So I said, Lloyd, no matter what, do not move until my knee is all the way up. Well, he didn't. And I picked my knee up, and I'm all the way up here. He hadn't moved. And now i got to go into the, well, the runner at first base, Jeff Husson was his name. He takes off, gets a secondary lead, and I literally just go like this. And it went over there to Lloyd like this. He picked it out of the dirt and was standing there waiting on Houston to come back and touch him. And I felt great about it at the time because we won, but the whole time Zim was like, what, 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 what the fuck are you doing? What are you, what are you, what? I said, Zim, just go sit down. We'll take care of this. So he goes bobbing off the field. And when we picked him off, I walk off the field and he has that same look on him. God damn. You're not smarter than me, Mitch. I went, I know I'm not smarter than you. I, I dumb it down when I have to, Zim. <laughs> now, was that the, um, you, you're, I mean, I don't know if this record still holds true today, but you're the only guy to get a save off without throwing a pitch. Does that still hold true? This day? Was, that, was that the outing you're talking about? Uh, I have. Because that was a record for a while. I'm the only guy that has three saves in the big leagues with never getting a hitter out. Okay, gotcha. The guys on base don't have bats in their hands. They can't hit balls out of the park. <laughs> and I learned a first base move and a second base move because it got me out of a lot of trouble. 
Yeah, did, did, did anybody ever try to, like, any, any of the coaches, managers ever try to fix your unorthodox style of pitching? Like, say, hey, you can't fall off to the third base side anymore, and you, you got to get your mechanics together, and this is where, how you're never going to walk anybody again. Like, and, the, you know, that we really, like, try to change you as the, your style that oh, was already working for you. The theory back then was because I had an older brother that signed the year before I did. And to this day, is still the hardest thrower I ever saw. They had him at 98 on a ray gun when he was 18. And he made me look like Tommy John (laughs) control-wise. We played against each other in the minor leagues one year, and we were 1-2 in walks, 1-2 in hits batsmen, 1-2 in strikeouts, everything. Wild pitches. It was Bruce, Mitch, Mitch, Bruce. So he never pitched in the big leagues. But when I got there, all I wanted to do, when I look at and getting back to your question, repeat it again. Well, just did anybody try to change oh, your yeah, unorthodox that's style? That's a theory I wanted to talk about. My brother, there was a theory back then, if you were a hard thrower, that you were overthrowing. And my brother listened to coaching in the minor leagues. He played, I think, six years in the minor leagues, signed when he was 18. The Brewers released him. And I had gotten to the big leagues with the Rangers at the time, and I got him a tryout with the Rangers in Arlington. And he's throwing in the bullpen, and there's nothing there. And I went up to him during his bullpen, and I said, are you hurt? He said, no. I said, where's your fastball? He listened to coaches that said, take a little bit off to get it over. I refused to listen to anyone. I was going to get to the big leagues throwing it as hard as I could throw it, or I was going to be the hardest thrower on Mark's Tavern softball team back in Oregon. <laughs> I was just, I was hard-headed, and that, that's why I got invited to, to leave a lot, honestly. Uh, they'd say, it's time for you to go. I never stayed anywhere longer than three years, so 26 years of marriage is miraculous. <laughs> Fire away. Um, we're going to take audience questions, but i got to ask I I got to ask you this about the, the clincher in uh, Montreal. Uh, we've had a lot of guys here from the 89 team, including Dwight Smith and Jerome Walton. And not, we have had Andre out here. We have Ryan Samberg out here. I got to have you sign the wall before you leave, by the way. Um, how much did Rick Sutcliffe spend at the strip club that night? <laughs> I don't know, honestly. I'll tell you this, though. Sut is one of the most generous people I ever played with. And... I'll tell you, Sut was the most generous, and Rhino threw nickels around like manhole covers. In the big leagues, whoever rides in the front seat of the cab pays the cab fare on the way to the ballpark. Rhino hung out with all the rookies, and he would dive through the back window of a cab rather than have to pay for a cab fare. So one night they go, Sutcliffe, Jody Davis, Keith Moreland the, and Rhino, all the wives and everybody go out to eat at Rana Japan. The check comes, well, Rhino and them had got, or Sutton and them had got together for dinner. They said, we ain't paying this check. The check comes and Rhino's like this, looking around. <laughs> and they just called him on it and they said, Rhino, we're not paying this bill. You are. And you'd have thought they asked for one of his kids. Cheap, cheap, cheap. <laughs> but could damn sure play second base. 
we'll get we're going to take some audience questions. I wanted to ask you about Harry Carey. Uh, did you ever go out and drink with Harry Carey? You know, Harry was one of those guys. I was married to my first wife at the time, and my ex-mother-in-law, who's passed on now, was a Harry fan. The thing I loved about Harry, I told him that day, I said, look, my mother-in-law and her sisters are coming into town. I want to bring them to your restaurant. They can't wait to meet you. He shows up 10.30 at night just to meet these women. Yeah. That's the kind of guy Harry was. That's awesome. Yeah, he was, he was a good guy. He loved to drink. And I've never seen a grown man fall for the $10 bill on the fishing line trick more than once. <laughs> Harry felt for it every road trip. He'd be walking through the airport and he'd look down, bend over to pick it up, and they'd punch that button and snatch it away from him. They did it to him one time and I, I caught him trying to pick it up and I went, Harry, goddamn, you got more money than God. And he goes, where's Zimmer? <laughs> Classic. I, I do have one, one question before we open it up. Uh, did you invent the pitcher's mullet? It seems like, you, you know, because now you see, because that's what I'm like, that's what I got going on now. That's a skullet. Uh, yeah, this is a skullet. <laughs> I'm trying to, try to get it going on. But, it, it, but seriously, like, I remember like, you sitting out there being one of the first dudes that ever grew their hair long, had that flowing out. Now you see a bunch of relief pitchers. Like, now it's a thing you do when you are a relief pitcher, to have crazy long hair and look like a weirdo. Well, do, do you feel like you invented that in any way? I don't know if I invented it. I was just trying to look as mean as possible. I got to the big leagues. I was 6'4", 170 pounds. I didn't shave until my second year in the big leagues. Oh. So it was a little hard for me to look mean. I lied my ass off on my bubblegum card. You can check it. It says 6'4", 200. <laughs> I was 25 pounds from that. I didn't get to 200 until I was 26 years old. So as far as the mullet went, I only grew it because my nickname as a kid was Neck because my neck is so long. So I grew it to make my neck look shorter. <laughs> but it did get number six all-time mullet on ESPN. Oh, nice. I didn't, I didn't get a plaque or a trophy or nothing. Mitch, um, Don Zimmer, who we talked about earlier, he, won, he was in World Series with the L.A. Dodgers, Brooklyn Dodgers, Boston Red Sox, and the whole string of the 90s Yankees winning them. But before he passed away, the team that he always said was the most important to him was the 1989 Cubs team. And I, there's a lot of talk about that last speech he gave to you guys after you lost to the Dodgers in the NLDS. Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, Don said to you after the, after the well, Giants? Yeah, we lost that final game to the Giants. And I'll tell you, let me preface this by saying what happened after the Montreal game. When we clinched in Montreal, there was not a dry eye in our clubhouse for the simple fact that Zim had been in the game I think uh, close to 50 years at that time and had never managed a pennant winner, a division winner. So that being his first division win, he broke down in the clubhouse, which led to everybody else breaking down. And it was something I'll never forget. And when we lost in San Francisco, Zim basically said what you just said, that that team will always be his favorite team. So it was, it was something special. It really was. 
God bless Don Zimmerman. I mean, I, lo I love the guy. So. We're going to take audience questions. We'll pass the mic around. Um, anybody have a question? Danny, uh, serve one up and we'll pass this around. Anybody? <laughs> Well, yeah, the store is closed upstairs. Hey, Carol, before you leave. I, I, I got a, well, it, nobody's got a question. What do you think about, because you, you're still hanging out, out around the game, working on TV before, and what do you think about, you're in a lot of clubhouses, about the different kind of mental preparation that people have to do now with, you know, whether it be, you know, the advanced analytics, the drive line, the spin rates, the, the computers that you're hooked up to, the, you know, uh, you know, the difference. I want to kind of know about the difference between what it was for you when you were playing and what you see now and, and what, how do you think that shakes out? I am not a fan of analytics at all. I think it forces players into a situation where, there's paralysis by analysis. Instead of just going up there and doing what you did to get to the big leagues. And I've seen it in Philly. They have a player there that's pretty special, Reese Hoskins. And they have destroyed this kid with analytics. And I hate to see it because, number one, their numbers are completely wrong. Pitch count is not the issue. It's not the issue at all. It's the fact that they don't hire pitching coaches that know the mechanics of the position. That's basically what it comes down to. If I'm going to take a $30 million a year starter, I am not putting his health in the hands of a $3 clicker because somebody came up with the magic number 100. It, it's just stupid is what it is. The human body doesn't feel the same way every day. I went to the ballpark every day ready to pitch and expected to pitch. As a starter, your day comes up, you might feel great, you might feel so-so, you might feel bad. So how can you put a 100 pitch count limit on a human being? Number one, his mechanics could start to break down after 50 pitches, so let's leave him back out, leave him out there and to throw 50 pitches with bad mechanics and risk getting him hurt and then there's days when you can throw 150 pitches and your mechanics don't break down. If a pitcher's sailing along, and I'll give you a great example. In 2008, when the Phillies were playing the Dodgers, in L.A., Pedro Martinez has the Dodgers completely done. Seven innings, they couldn't hit him with a bodor, and they take him out of the game because of pitch count. Every player on that Dodgers bench is doing cartwheels because they, they would rather face Cy Young than Pedro right now. So they bring a reliever in. What happens? Two runs the very next inning. The game of baseball is all perception. And if the guys on that bench that have bats in their hands are of the perception they can't hit that guy on the mound, you don't take him out if he's mechanically sound. That's where the game has lost a bunch, I believe. You will never, ever in our lifetime see another 300-game winner, ever. It just won't happen. Number one, the money is so great. Players aren't going to play past 15 years. There aren't Greg Maddox's all over. So 
Mad Dog played the game because he loved it, not for the money. So many guys play the game for money that now they play eight, nine years, they're set for life. And with the bullpens the way they are now, you got 13 guys in a bullpen. When I broke in, they had five starters and five relievers. That was it. And these guys now, uh, two days in a row, they need two days off. I'm like, there was a, a stretch in 1987 when I was with the Rangers, and we played 13 games. I pitched in 12 of them, and Dale Mahorsik pitched in all 13. I threw a baseball as hard as I could throw it every single day for 16 years. Didn't get stiff, didn't get sore. Everyone wanted to make fun of my mechanics after I let go of it. I don't care if a pitcher bursts into flames after he lets go of it. If he's mechanically right before he lets go of it, that's all that matters. So that's all I ever concentrated on. That's where they're hurting the game. Because you're not getting to see enough of the great guys and great pitching that's in the game today because they're taking that away from them. I can tell you this, if I got a no-hitter going in the eighth inning, the pitching coach or manager better have a gun in his hand coming to take me out. Because it just wouldn't happen. I honestly think we're so far past that now. I, I look at it and I, I work in radio in Philly and I had to listen to Gabe Kapler talk and <laughs> that was the dumbest hire I've ever seen in my life. We're in Philly, so naturally go out and hire the guy that's modeling a weenie bikini. <laughs> it did not go over big with Philly fans right away. He, he's a male model, great, congratulations. But he was all about analytics, and the game is played on a field. It ain't played on a computer. It's played on the field. I mean, that's a great thing. Like, when I was, oh, I'm going to give you the mic. When You know, you guys played when the, was, the game was, I mean, in my opinion, was more pure, you know. It was more pure. Now it's just, it's all about the money, and it's all about, you know, it's just not the same as it used to be. Like, back when, I mean, when you guys played, it was... We, they I, mean, I, I felt it was different. I mean, I really did. It was very it, it's different. It's different than it is now. Give the mic I back. see stuff today, and I wouldn't manage. I couldn't coach or couldn't manage in today's game because I would be paying for cell phones and everything else that I'd be smashing that players are taking down on the bench with them. Once you walk through that locker room door, that's your job, and there's a lot of people paying a lot of their money to watch you come out and perform, not watch you text. Hi there. Hi, hon. Hi, I'm Laura from Huntley. It's my first time here, and I have to say it's amazing, and you're so fun to listen to your stories. Um, Thank you. I have just a dumb question, you know, dumb girl question. What's your face, favorite baseball movie? Uh, Bull Durham. Bull Durham. I actually played there, and no, I did not hit the mascot. <laughs> that was my only relief appearance in the minor leagues was in that ballpark. Uh, probably Wrigley. Yeah, thanks, Everybody gave it a bad rap about it being a, a hitter's ballpark. I can tell you this, in 1990, Ryan Sandberg hit 10 balls in April that I watched from the bullpen go over the outfield fence and blow back. <laughs> he hit 40 home runs that year. 
He would have hit 50. You can't hit a two iron out of that place in April. So I loved it. So, so Mitch, go back to, you know, you're talking about the state of the game today and so forth. I mean, you got managers like Girardi who kind of grew up with the game being the way you played it and so forth. Can they change it? Can they shift the focus? Or do no. They? The, reason I, the reason I say no so quickly, every team is hiring Ivy League general managers. And I've seen one that did it the right way, and that was Andrew Friedman down in Tampa. Because he didn't come in there and try and act like he was smarter than everybody. He came in there, hired really smart baseball guys, and said, this is the money we have to work with. Go find me the best players you can. And they made, made it to the World Series in 2008 doing that. The flip side of that is a guy like John Daniels in Texas. He's got Nolan Ryan there. Nolan Ryan, you're not going to argue with him on pitching. Josh Daniels wanted to. And it got to the point, and I sat in the clubhouse and talked to Nolan for about two hours one night. Got to the point where he was a mascot. They didn't listen to him, and the Rangers were going in the toilet. And you see what they've done since. Nolan left, went to Houston to be with his son, Reed, who's the president, and they've won a World Series and been to another one since then. So it goes to show you, leave the baseball decisions to the baseball guys and the financial and business decisions, you take care of that. Mitch, we were laughing, Danny and I, before, when we were in the hotel room writing that song about Lenny Dykstra, we looked at a YouTube video where the bleacher bums dropped a beer on Lenny. Lenny Dykstra was kind of an asshole, if I can say that. No, he's really an asshole. Really an asshole. <laughs> Is there anything you can tell us about Lenny Dykstra, that, that why he's such an asshole or what his issue is? Or even that whole, like, uh, 93 Phillies team. I mean, you guys, I mean, Crock, Chilling. I mean, just Cro like... Crocky was my favorite guy. Uh, I've known Crocky longer than I've known anyone in baseball. I signed when I was 17 with the Padres, and he had signed a year before. So I've known him since I was 17 years old. Lenny, he just ain't all there. And, and that's really the only... Literally, I, his teeth are out of his head. He's not there anymore. Part, parts of him are missing. Yeah. <laughs> I walked into a mall. At a, I had a signing. I think uh, Gary Pressey's organ just got uh, <laughs> juiced. God, your organ got wet? A little bit. It's that kind of party. <laughs> But yeah, uh, Dyke, so, yeah, the, 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 yeah, I'm the, at a mall one the, day, and someone came over to my table and said, Lenny and Dutch are in uh, the store down there. Well, Darren Dalton at the time was battling brain cancer, and he's one of my really good friends, so I went over to see him. And Dykstra has spent 25 years ripping me over the World Series. Why, I don't know. I ripped myself. He didn't need to. But he's just constant with it. And I walked into the store, and Dutch came over and gave me a hug. And Lenny came over and tried to give me a hug. And I gave him one of these, and I said, you need to get away from me. Because he wouldn't shut up. And I wouldn't hit him because there was a lot of witnesses. <laughs> but, yeah, he's just one of those guys. Smartest baseball player I ever played with. And the dumbest human I've ever met. <laughs> 
Hey, Mitch, uh, what was your favorite strikeout of all time or your favorite moment in Major League Baseball? Well, my favorite strikeout of all time would have to be the one uh, Bill Pakoda to end the NLCS. I threw the 2-1 pitch behind him and then threw the 3-1 pitch down the middle and then he swung at a ball over his head for strike three to end it. So that's probably my favorite strikeout. How about uh, your home run at Wrigley Field? Oh, yeah. yeah, that was a pretty big moment. It was like, home run. Oh. yeah, it was in September. You guys, the Mets, I believe it yeah. was the, a guy named Ace, Aussie. right? John Ossie. Oh, it's his Ossie? Yeah. yeah. I came up and Jim again uh, didn't double switch. And I went up there and I, I knew Don Ossie. I'd seen him pitch actually because he was with the Orioles in the American League as a closer and went to the Mets. And I went up there and I just told myself, I'm going to swing at the first pitch. I don't care where it is or what it is. And I did, and I showed him how late I was on his fastball and talked him into throwing it again. And I cheated a little bit and hit it in the left field bleachers. <laughs> yeah. Apo Taco. That was my first big league hit. Who, who was talking about his home run? Somebody was bringing that up today. Conkel. Come on, Conkel, tell me that story. Give them the mic. I, uh, I work at Sunset Ridge Country Club, and the president of Canon Camera, Camera at the time, with the official sponsor of the Cubs, had given me 60 tickets in April for a game late in the year because he said, Cubs are going to be terrible this year. Hope you enjoy the game. Take the waitresses and the pros and everyone. And that game, we took two buses to Wrigley, and that was the game he hit the home run to left field. Timed it perfectly. So, <laughs> you witnessed history. And I had a member offer me 5000 for those 60 tickets, and I wouldn't sell them. <laughs> That's a good That deal. was a lot of money back then. Heck, yeah. <clears throat> Any other questions for Mitch? What is a double switch? A double switch? Who asked that question? She did. Zimmer? Is that Zimmer? <laughs> <laughs> okay, a, a double switch is... Say you're going to take the pitcher out. Well, depending on where you're at in the batting order, if the pitcher is due up the next inning, you bring the pitcher in and sub someone that's hitting above him. You bring an an outfielder in with the relief pitcher. So he goes into the pitcher's spot and the pitcher goes into his spot. (laughs) I, I have one. Who's your favorite hitter and pitcher today? Oh. I'm going to have to stick with Miggy and Mike Trout. Miggy? Miguel Cabrera has the, the fastest hands, second to only probably Ken Griffey Jr. I have ever seen. And uh, Mike Trout, someone needs to tell him they're in a league higher than this one. $420 million. I'd play naked in Iraq for that. <laughs> in case someone was wondering. Who was your favorite growing up? Who did you model your, yourself after? I, I was a football fan. I played baseball. I wasn't a big fan of it. I only liked one guy, and that was Goose Gossage. And I was brought here in 89 to take his job. Yeah. And it was really uncomfortable. <laughs> until Goose made it not uncomfortable because he is one hell of an individual. I ended up taking his job and 
a great story about him. My dad loved him, absolutely loved him. And I told him I wanted to get an autograph before spring training was over for my father. Well, I came in one day late in spring and Goose was gone. They had released him the night before. Well, I didn't get my autograph. And I felt bad because we became good friends and taking somebody's job is not the greatest feeling in the world. But I didn't get the autograph and Goose signs with San Francisco. Well, my folks at the time, my dad lived in Oregon, so they drove to San Francisco. Well, I was outside, they were in the bleachers, I was talking to my folks, and Goose came out the door from the locker rooms. And he walks out and sees me and turns around and goes back in. And I was like, damn, he's pissed at me. He came walking back out the door, walked over to my father, handed him one of his gloves that had Goose Gossage stitched in it, handed it to him and said, I didn't forget, I just got released. And I was like, that's really cool. Really cool. So Mitch, I got a question. Yeah. With all this stuff coming up with the sign stealing in baseball right now, they're, you know, they're hammering the Astros, now Boston, is it, Boston's getting brought up right now and investigated. Is it more so because they're using technology or they're, they're being rumored that they're using technology? Because sign stealing's been going on in baseball for years, correct? Since uh, the day it was it invented. So do you, I, because me personally, I don't have a problem with stealing signs, but if they're using the technology, I get it. Do you have a problem with the sign stealing? Well, I, I don't have a problem with sign stealing. There's ways to correct that. I mean, you can handle that on your own. <laughs> and I was always more than happy to. <laughs> but I hit 53 guys in my career, and they weren't all on accident. <laughs> so you handle that kind of thing. We knew Chicago, the White Sox were notorious for it. They had a light on their scoreboard in center field. It was one single bulb that would come on in the bottom right-hand corner every time a fastball was being thrown. It's been going on forever. In the Metrodome in Minnesota, they turned the air conditioning on when the Twins came up. Everybody's looking for an advantage. And my dad told me, if you ain't cheating, you don't want to win bad enough. So... Hey, Mitch, I want to ask, you know what? This is one of the reasons why I truly respect you. I really do. Because most people, you know, they hide and stuff like that. We're going to go back to 93. After the home run from Carter, this was your response in the locker room. And I think it's awesome. I I think because, I mean, one of the hardest moments of your entire life, you stood up like a man, you met the media, you dealt with the bullshit. And this is Mitch's quote, and, I, and I'm just saying this because I, I respect this man because of it. One of the hardest p- part of his life, he, he stood there like a man, and he said the following. I'm not going to go home and commit suicide. I wish I hadn't thrown it down to Carter. I was trying to keep the ball away from him. It was a mistake. It ain't coming back. I can't replay it and win it. I can't change this one as much as I like to. If only because my it's only because my teammates busting my butts, I let them down. But don't expect me to curl up and hide from people because I gave up a home run in the World Series. Life's a bitch, and I could be digging ditches, dude. You don't understand how much to, to me, dude. That meant so much because that's one of the reasons why I love you, Mitch. Because in your worst of times, you stood up to it, man. You stood it by your locker room. And you, those words that you mentioned were unbelievable, buddy. The first question I answered that night 
somebody walks in there. I mean, it was, my locker was just a zoo. I sat there for an hour and a half answering questions. The first question I answered was about uh, Donnie Moore. I sat there and they didn't get that exactly right. The guy says to me, well, Mitch, what about the Donnie Moore situation? And I looked at him, I said, any of you some bitches waiting for me to kill myself over a baseball game got a long fucking wait, because it ain't happening. Sometimes you get, sometimes you get got. My father did not accept excuses when I was growing up. I never made any. I held the ball, it was my responsibility. I joked about it years later saying Pete and Cavillia wasn't playing high enough and left, but. <laughs> It's just how I was made. Uh, there's no sympathy, and, and I try to get this across to kids today. There's no sympathy in sports. There's no sympathy, period. And I use this saying, if the kids are old enough. If you want sympathy, it's in the dictionary between shit and syphilis. <laughs> and, and that's basically how I view life. You gotta be accountable for your own actions and if you don't accept your losses, you can't accept your wins. All right, Mitch, so what do the Cubs need to do? Sorry, back here again. Okay. What do the Cubs need to do uh, this year to win, in your eyes? Oh, win more games than anybody else in their division. <laughs> Just to break it down easily. Pitching, it's always going to come back to pitching. If you, if you have a lineup that can take enough pressure off your pitching staff, especially if they're a young pitching staff, then you have a recipe for success. We might be in need of somebody. What are you doing between April and September? Do you think, you, you know, to throw for the Cubs? We might, we, we really don't have a full pitching have, staff I at this point. I have a better point. chance kicking at home. <laughs> That's... All right, we're going to end this real soon. Does anybody else have any other questions? Going once, going twice. Danny, why don't you end this off here? All right, well, Mitch, I, I can say that little 15-year-old me is very excited that I'm sitting here as 40, almost 6-year-old me. And, 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 and uh, you know, it's just really cool to meet you. Very exciting season, 1989. You know, it didn't end the way any of us wanted it to. But I know for a lot of us here that are in their mid-40s right now, when you're hitting that, like, you know, 10 to 13 spot and you haven't really noticed girls yet, too, well, a little bit, but they don't talk to you. You, you notice them, but they don't talk to you. That was a, just a very special year for me. Of course, the issue they will. <laughs> but it was it was a it was a fun year. It was an honor to sit next to you and have have this thanks. conversation with you tonight. And uh, you know, just to, thanks for uh, all your time um, that, that you gave. Even those couple years were so huge. Oh yeah, I two had, years were just huge. I can't sit here and think of one single bad thing to say about this city and its fans. I appreciate you all having me out here tonight. And, and we need to really bring them back. Fully to the Cubs organization because he, he, you know, he's a major part of it. I mean, they don't like for some reason they won't have me at the Cub convention. I'm gonna, right? I'm gonna dial up Ricketts. We'll see what we can do. Yeah, yeah, we gotta have the Witch Williams Wild thing back there. Yeah. Oh yeah, great. Hell yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll get you a press pass. <laughs> Thank you all very all right, much. Thanks. Everybody, Mitch Williams, Wild Thing. Wild Thing.
wild thing, I think I love you. But I wanna know for sure. So come on, hold me tight. 